You are listening to Chthonia, the podcast of the Dark Feminine. Chthonia's logo was designed by J.R. Malpair. Background music is Phantasm by Kevin McLeod. Hello and welcome to Chthonia, the podcast dealing with the Dark Feminine. I'm your host, Breach Burke. And this is going to be the last podcast episode for the year 2020, quite a year that it's been. Um, And I decided for the last one I'm going to do is kind of do an interpretation, well not kind of, I'm going to do an interpretation of a folktale. And the folktale, of course, appropriate to winter itself is called the Snow Queen. And the Snow Queen is this central character who is who does represent a certain aspect of the dark feminine. In the last episode, we talked about um, Skadi, okay, this the giantess who is the goddess or the um, uh, Yutun who is associated with winter. And Yutun, as I had indicated, are they're sometimes like I said that name that's a word that's sometimes translated as troll, but it implies a figure that. Um, existed before the original Norse um, pagan gods or Scandinavian gods. And so when we look now at the Snow Queen, this is a fairy tale that was written by Hans Christian Andersen, who has written, of course, you know, many many of the famous fairy tales that we have come from Andersen. Uh, it was written in 1845, so this is being written in a Christian context. So some of the images that we have here are actually redone to be, um, you know, we have certain figures, uh, starting with with a troll, who are are definitely being reinterpreted in the paradigm of uh, of good and evil uh, and of Christian versus uh, non-Christian. Although, as we'll see, Anderson includes, you know, materiality, um, the excessive use of reason, and and things like that is among the things that are uh, part of the Snow Queen's domain. One of the curious um, things about her, when I compare her to Scotty, now she's not she's not meant to be a Scotty figure. Let me just make that clear. But her her we're in both cases we are seeing these sort of dark feminine figure um, whose role is very much, um, who has a lot to do with the, the you know, who, who's connected to ice, who's connected to snow, connected to winter, and has this quality, as I think I'd mentioned in the last episode, you know, an, akin to what I think of as the suit of swords. Okay, there's this very air quality that that is, you know, it, it may have to do with swiftness and knowledge and communication and things like that, but it also sometimes can have to do with the lack of feeling, the loss of emotion. And I think this is an interesting uh, a fairy tale in light of the kind of world that we, that we live in now. Um, I, you know, I think this is, you know, I think you'll find this to be a rather interesting uh, choice. So what I'm going to do is I'm actually going to read, um, it's really kind of a synopsis of the fairy tale. I'm not actually, I think it would take too long to sit there and read through the actual Hans Christian Andersen text. So I'm going to read the synopsis of it. You'll get all the uh, sections. And then I'm going to go back through the fairy tale. And I want to give you sort of, you know, kind of give an explication here of what's what's going on. What are we, what are we seeing? What is the symbolism here? What is it telling us? So 
So let me begin here. Um, as it was pointed out here, the story is told in, it's a tale within seven stories. There's sort of seven sub-stories within this one story. And the seven sections are about the mirror and its pieces, a little boy and a little girl, the flower garden of the woman who knew magic, the prince and the princess, the little robber girl, the lap woman and the fin woman, and what happened at the Snow Queen's palace and afterward. Okay? So those are the sections of this particular tale. Okay. So let's start at the beginning. First, I'm just going to read the story straight, no explanations, and then I will go back through and we will look at each um, element here. So, okay, the first, first part of the story. The devil in the form of an evil troll has made a magic mirror that distorts the appearance of everything that it reflects. The magic mirror fails to reflect the good and beautiful aspects of people and things and magnifies their bad and ugly aspects. The devil, who is headmaster at a troll school, takes the mirror and his pupils throughout the world, delighting in using it to distort everyone and everything. They attempt to carry the mirror into heaven in order to make fools of the angels and God, but the higher they lift it, the more the mirror shakes as they laugh, and it slips from their grasp and falls back to earth, shattering into billions of pieces, some no larger than a grain of sand. The splinters are blown by the wind all over the earth and get into people's hearts and eyes, freezing their hearts like blocks of ice and making their eyes like the troll mirror itself, seeing only the bad and ugly in people and things. Years later, a little boy, Kai, and a little girl, Gerda, live next door to each other in the garrets of buildings with adjoining roofs in a large city. They could get from one's home to the other just by stepping over the gutters of each building. The two families grow vegetables and roses in window boxes placed on the gutters. Gerda and Kai have a window box garden to play in, and they become devoted to each other as playmates, as close as if they were siblings. Kai's grandmother tells the children about the Snow Queen, who is ruler over the snow bees, snowflakes that look like bees. As bees have a queen, so do the snow bees, and she is seen where the snowflakes cluster the most. Looking out of his frosted window one winter, Kai sees the snow queen, who beckons him to come with her. Kai draws back in fear from the window. By the following spring, Gerda has learned a song that she sings to Kai. Roses flower in the veil, there we hear child Jesus' tale. Because the roses adorn the window box garden, the sight of roses always reminds Gerda of her love for Kai. On a pleasant summer day, splinters of the troll mirror get into Kai's heart and eyes. Kai becomes cruel and aggressive. He destroys their window box garden, he makes fun of their grandmother, and he no longer cares about Gerda since everyone now appears bad and ugly to him. The only beautiful and perfect things to him now are the tiny snowflakes he sees through a magnifying glass. The following winter, Kai goes out with his sled to play in the snowy market square and hitches it to a curious white sleigh carriage driven by the Snow Queen, who appears as a woman in a white fur coat. Outside the city, she reveals herself to Kai and kisses him twice, once to numb him from the cold, a second time to make him forget about Gerda and his family, and a third kiss would kill him. She takes Kai in her sleigh to her palace. The people of the city conclude that Kai died in the nearby river. Gerda, heartbroken, goes out the next summer to look for him and questions everyone and everything about Kai's whereabouts. She offers her new red shoes to the river in exchange for Kai. By not taking the gift at first, the river lets her know that Kai did not drown. So Gerda climbs into a boat and the river carries her away to start her on the right path. Gerda next visits an old sorceress with a beautiful garden of eternal summer. 
The sorceress wants Gerda to stay with her forever, so she causes Gerda to forget Kai and causes all the roses in her garden to sink beneath the earth. Since she knows the sight of them, will remind Gerda of her friend. However, a while later, whilst playing in the garden, Gerda sees a rose on the sorceress's hat and then remembers Kai and begins to cry. Gerda's warm tears raise one bush above the ground, and it tells her that it could see all the dead while it was under the earth, and Kai is not among them. So she interrogates the other flowers in the garden, but they only know a single story each, which they sign to her. Realizing that they cannot help her find Kai, Gerda flees the garden of eternal summer and realizes it's already autumn. She has wasted a lot of time and has no warm clothes to wear. <clears throat> Gerda flees and meets a crow, who tells her that Kai is in the princess's palace. Gerda goes to the palace and she meets the princess and the prince, who is not Kai, but looks like him. Gerda tells them her story, and they provide her with warm clothes and a beautiful coach. While traveling in the coach, Gerda is captured by robbers and brought to their castle, where she befriends a little robber girl whose pet doves tell her that they saw Kai when he was carried away by the Snow Queen in the direction of Lapland. The captive reindeer Bay tells her that he knows how to get to Lapland since it is his home. The robber girl frees Gerda and the reindeer to travel north to the Snow Queen's palace. They make two stops, first at the Lap Woman's home and then at the Finn Woman's home. The Finn Woman tells the reindeer the secret of Gerda's unique power to save Kai is in her sweet and innocent child's heart. He says, I, have no greater, I can give her no greater power than she has already, said the woman. Don't you see how strong that is? How men and animals are obliged to serve her and how well she has got through the world, barefooted as she is. She cannot receive any power from me greater than she now has, which consists in her own purity and innocence of heart. If she cannot herself obtain access to the Snow Queen and remove the glass fragments from little Kai, we can do nothing to help her. When Gerda reaches the Snow Queen's palace, she is halted by the snowflakes guarding it. She prays the Lord's Prayer, which causes her breath to take the shape of angels who resist the snowflakes and allow Gerda to enter the palace. Gerda finds Kai alone and almost immobile on a frozen lake, which the Snow Queen calls the Mirror of Reason on which her throne sits. Kai is engaged in the task the Snow Queen gave him. He must use pieces of ice like a Chinese puzzle to form characters and words. If he is able to form the word the Snow Queen told him to spell, she will release him from her power and give him a pair of skates. Gerda runs up to Kai and kisses him, and he is saved by the power of her love. Gerda weeps warm tears on him, melting his heart and burning away the troll mirror splinter in it. As a result, Kai bursts into tears which dislodge the splinter from his eye, and he becomes cheerful and healthy again. He remembers Gerda, and the two dance around so joyously that the splinters of ice Kai had been playing with are caught up in the dance. When they tire of dancing, the splinters fall down to spell eternity, the very word Kai was trying to spell. Kai and Gerda leave the Snow Queen's domain with the help of the reindeer, the Finn woman, and the Lap woman. They meet the robber girl, and from there they walk back to their home. Kai and Gerda find that everything at home is the same, and that it is they who have changed. They are now grown up, and are delighted to see that it is summertime. At the end, the grandmother reads a passage from the Bible. Assuredly, I say to you, unless you are converted and become as little children, you will by no means enter the kingdom of heaven. Okay. So, um, yeah. Okay. So this is a rather interesting story. There's so much in here. Um, it's, it would be hard to do a, a segment on every single symbol in here, but... There's, there's still quite a bit here that we can just talk about more generally. 
and perhaps even in the comments for the podcast or, you know, um, on social media. Um, <clears throat> if you're watching this on YouTube in the comments, you may have further things that you might want to add. But let's just speak about this a little bit more generally. So first of all, in the beginning of the story, okay, the devil's in the form of an evil troll. Now, as you recall from the last episode, we talked about the, uh, the Yotun, who uh, are sometimes considered to be trolls. And to me, there's, there's a, a Christianization there. Um, there's the idea that these old primal gods are somehow devils, that they are evil, which is not uncommon. This happens quite a bit um, in the folklore and mythology and tales that have gone throughout the various parts of Europe and even other parts of the world, too. Um, although it seems to be a particularly European phenomenon. Um, okay, so... If we also think about the fact, like I, I find myself thinking in um, Platonic terms, because Plato is the one who had claimed that the Titans, who are also the primordial forces in ancient Greek mythology, are he he, he refers to them as being wicked. Okay, when he talks about the story of, um, he makes reference to it. Uh, he may he had, there's there's a particular line in the Republic where he makes you know the the um, the Titanic nature or, or the idea of the Titans. Um, you know, um, the, the humans inheriting their wicked nature. And this goes back to the Orphic story of Dionysus, which says that Dionysus was, um, <clears throat> it's a story, in a way, it's, it's the first um, death and resurrection story that we have. Um, Dionysus is named as the successor to Zeus. Now, if you can't see this as a quote-unquote son of God kind of setup, um, well, there it is. And while the child Dionysus is playing, the Titans become jealous and they lure him away with toys, and then they tear him to bits, and then they're going to cook and eat him, okay? Now, that's also interesting, because we think about the idea of um, eating Christ's body and drinking Christ's blood, right? So they, they do this. However, um, Athena stops them and, and manages to save his heart. And so from this, she's able to reconstruct Dionysus, and he is reborn, okay? And the Titans are punished. What happens is Zeus strikes them with his lightning bolt, and then they are reduced to ashes. And out of these ashes rise humans, okay? Now, from this, the Orphics would have said that um, humans have their wicked nature from the Titans, but they also have a spark of the divine from the pieces of Dionysus that are ingested, okay? So now you see this, this kind of parallel. Um, and again, this goes back to the idea that... Um, these older primordial beings, like trolls in this particular um, uh, mythical and folkloric system in um, Scandinavia, are, are evil. Okay, so there's a magic mirror, okay? So what does a mirror do? It reflects back. It's a projection. And this we can almost relate to Jung's phenomenon of um, projection, where we project the qualities, well, we can actually can go either way. You can project the qualities that you really admire onto somebody else or, you know, you consider desirable. This can make you either just really have an affinity and like somebody. It can make you fall in love with somebody, okay? On the, on the reverse, a lot of times the way projection works is that we are very judgmental and we are very put off by people who have qualities that we have in ourselves that we don't want to recognize. So it's the idea that you're almost walking around looking at a funhouse mirror where everything's distorted, okay? And, you know, we're actually looking at a reflection of ourselves, but instead of recognizing it as ourselves, we just see it 
as the other person. You know, the image in the mirror is who I am, but it's not who you are. Or rather, maybe it is. Um, you know, you're saying that person over there, <clears throat> you know, they do this and they do this and they do this. And in fact, um, these are weaknesses that either you already have and just don't recognize or that you perceive in yourself and don't want to, you know, are ashamed of, don't want to acknowledge, whatever. Okay. So the, so the, it, so it only reflects the bad and the ugly aspects of people, not the good and the beautiful. So again, this is the idea of the projected shadow. Um, now, the fact that this mirror shatters into a million pieces, into shards, okay? Again, we have this idea of the, um, of the split, of the disassociation, the way in which our, our perception um, of, you know, and our split perception between good and evil, you know, shatters the world and splits it apart for us. So it's, you know, so it's, so 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 everything is everything becomes distorted okay so this is really a very it's it's an interesting folkloric image of the idea of shadow projection okay and it's it's also the way in which we we see all these things in the outside world and that way we can only see it as ugly we can't see the good things in it and i thought that was a very apt kind of image for 2020 um where yes there have been a lot of ugly things that have truly gone on but it's amazing how our our civilization, our society has just shattered and all there is just seems to be is ugliness all around. And it makes it very difficult to see what's still beautiful. Okay. So now we get into the Kai and Gerda story. Okay. So now you have your masculine and feminine elements. Okay. They live next door to each other. And there's this metaphor of the rose. Now the rose has to do a lot with the, definitely has to do with the divine feminine. Um, it is said that if you have, if a saint, if you, if, um, you know, if, if somebody say in Catholicism prays to a saint or prays to the Virgin Mother, that they will smell roses. Uh, the same is true of any kind of holy feminine figure. For instance, they, my guru, they will say, yes, you will smell roses. If, you know, if Amma is near, she will, you will smell roses. And she often smells like roses when you're near her. Um, and um, I, I've actually had that experience where I've um, something's been I've been very concerned about something, and all of a sudden you get that overwhelming rose scent. Um, and for me, that for me, I mean that that can be interpreted differently by different people. For me, I interpret that as the um, the guru who making her um, making herself known and saying, "Okay, I'm I'm, I'm here to help you handle this." Um, so okay, so they're close, and of course the love that they have is not so much a romantic love; it's more of a a platonic love. It's more of the sibling love, like you know, um, one that's not um, you know tainted by quote unquote tainted by lust or, or any of these other things. So you know, you so you have this sort of innocent, and and again, it's the idea of love and of um, of coming together rather than being split apart. So. The grandmother talks about snow bees. Now, what do we think of when we think of bees? Well, bees are hive animals. I mean, they're productive. They hang together. But we also think about bees in terms of the sting, okay? They, uh, they can represent the, um, that, that element that, um, that, that stings us, that hurts us, and that ends up giving us, uh, traumatizing us and giving us sort of that negative impression of the world. And this, this, these bees are connected with the Snow Queen, okay? And the Snow Queen is seen as a figure who does not have um, any love, okay? Now, she's trying to draw Kai away. She's trying to draw the masculine element away 
from this uh, in this story. Now, he at first backs away. Um, and again, they have this rose connection, so they have this sort of um, divine feminine, divine love connection. Um, but then one day, a splinter gets into his eyes, and now he sees things, now he only sees the ugliness. Okay, so he's blinded now. Uh, he, he has been, the, whether it be through the influence of the Snow Queen or, you know, just the influence of this, this, this devilish um, shattered troll mirror, you know, these become symbols of the way in which, um, you know, which, which young innocence suddenly becomes jaded and becomes, uh, you know, uh, cynical and distrustful and, and hateful towards the world. And so at this point, you see Kai rejecting his grandmother. He rejects Gerda. Um, he, you know, he no longer, he, ha he doesn't have the respect there. And, but the only beautiful thing it says is what's the, sn the snowflakes he sees through a magnifying glass. And that's very interesting, too, because there, there's definitely a, like a scientific criticism here. Because what does science do? It dissects things. It takes it apart. It looks at it at the molecular level. It looks at it at the, the atomic or particle level. It takes things apart. So the only thing beautiful to him are the things that are tiny, tiny, tiny. Um, things that are these small little fragments that he has to look at. Uh, and, and that's the only thing that becomes beautiful to him. So it's only this, this separation and this taking apart that is beautiful. And, and the reason I say this, and I don't say this to, um, you know, to diss science or whatever, but the problem is when you get too embedded in that worldview that is so sucked dry of emotion in, in favor of objectivity and facts that you actually lose the sense of the spirit of being alive, Okay. So to me, I feel like there's a critique there. It's not, you know, I don't, I don't, I don't think, and I'm, I don't know. I mean, I, I'd have to look more into Anderson's biography to see whether or not he had a particular um, beef with, with science or reason or if he was particularly religious. I, I, I've read things about him before, and I cannot quite remember at this point. I mean, that's certainly another aspect that, can, that could be explored. But, um, but, I, but just in thinking about it, I said there's definitely a sense there of um, – <clears throat> you know, you know, look, trying to, trying to take things apart and look at them at the micro, micro, micro level, you know, in the little, little particles rather than seeing the whole. Okay. So then we have this following winter where Kai meets the Snow Queen. She kisses him twice and they're saying the third kiss would kill him. Okay. So there's that, um, that sort of, um, you know, it's an interesting that there's kind of like a little triad there. I do not, by the way, um, I hear this a lot on paranormal shows and things when they talk about the threes of things and how, oh, the three is a mockery of the Trinity. It, that's garbage. I mean, don't anybody tells you that. I've even been told that by professional paranormal investigators who are actually very religious. They're like, nah, that's garbage. It doesn't mean anything. Something Ed and Lorraine Warren started. It's it's BS. But a lot of people want to say that like, oh, 3 a.m., that's a devil's hour. Well, guess what? In um, Hinduism and Buddhism, that's the, that's the hour the monks get up and start their prayers So, because it's considered to be a holy hour. So, you know, pick your, pick your symbol system. Um, okay, so in any case, Kai is taken away to the Snow Queen's palace, and everybody thinks he's drowned and that he's dead and that he's gone. And, of course, Gerda, she's very distressed and decides, well— she doesn't want to accept that he's dead, so she tries to find out what she can about what happened to him. Now, her um, it's interesting because her first encounter is with the river, okay? So this is with um, the element of water. Okay. 
and she offers her red shoes to the river. Now, now there's a materiality and there's also kind of a, a lust or passionate element to the idea of red shoes symbolically. I mean, they represent something she has materially that are of value and that are maybe considered to be beautiful. And again, we know the association of the color red with, um, with that more passionate kind of love. Um, so she offers them to the river, and <clears throat> the river eventually accepts them. And, and he is able to tell her, okay, Kai didn't drown. So she has the first little piece of her puzzle. And then she's able to, you know, because she makes an offering to the river, um, she is, you know, she's rewarded by being brought along uh, to the next stage in her journey. Um, so the next stage in her journey becomes the meeting up with this sorceress, this old woman, uh, who here will represent the earth. She's in this garden of eternal summer. So she's sort of this... Um, She's, but she's an old woman, so <clears throat> she's an old woman in this internal garden. Now, perhaps she wants Gerda there because she represents youth. Perhaps this is something she wants to re recapture. But what she does is she makes the roses sink so that she's not reminded of Kai. Nonetheless, while Gerda's there, you know, and again, there's this idea of forgetfulness, too. There's um, Forgetfulness is very much connected with the underworld. Um, and it's also, it also may have to do, you know, River Lethe, you know, that one drinks from to forget the life that they're in. But also there's the idea of things becoming unconscious. You know what I mean? You know, traumas, things that happen to us, um, sometimes even like the path that we're on just suddenly becomes, uh, you know, taken out of our consciousness and, you know, relegated to, to that part of our, you know, to, to the part, you know, the, the thing that, that maybe moves us or that's there it's not it's not gone but it's not it's not something in our thoughts it's something we don't think about and finally though she does see the rose on the sorceress's hat and then 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 there's the symbol there that reminds her now in all and yeah you talk about the idea of her having tears now when you're talking about a, a kind of um wintry or ice associated um you know, uh, mythology or mythological figure, tears are kind of the warm water, the warm water that melts the ice, okay? Because tears are hot. They, they come through and they're, and they're warm. Uh, there's a card in the Osho tarot deck called Isolation, and it's spelled at I-C-E slash dash Olation. And it shows a figure frozen in ice, um, and the face starts to appear as the tears fall. And that's the idea that one breaks out of, a, you know, unemotionalism and emotional isolation by allowing to, themselves to feel sorrow, allowing tears to come through. Because sorrow is what reconnects you to love. Okay, so that's, um, that's at least part of the value of it. That may be one of the values of depression is that when, <clears throat> you know, because depression can take you into a state where you're numb and you're sort of beyond um, emotion, but eventually it is emotion, you know, being able to feel that, really feel that pain and sorrow that allows, that can eventually bring you back to, um, you know, to making your way out of the depression, okay? So, <clears throat> so, okay, so by the time she leaves this garden, she realizes it's already autumn. So what does that symbolize? Okay, if we're talking about summer, we're talking about the peak of life, when we talk about autumn, now we're heading into winter. We're heading towards death. So there's, there's a lapse of time here. Time has been forgotten. One has stepped, almost stepped out of time in a time slip, as it were. 
Now again, now we have the reappearance of the roses. They come up from the underground. And the roses appearing from underground, that's bringing unconscious content to light. And then, you know, she becomes aware of this passage of time and now becomes aware that, that she has to continue to move on. So, okay, the next, her, the next thing she meets is a crow. Now, not only does she meet a crow in this, um, then you have the idea of not only the crow, but of the robbers and of the pet doves and then the reindeer, all of these, um, these particular characters who, um, and then of course she goes and she meets with the prince and princess who, you know, give her a coach and warm clothes and so forth. Now we're in the element, um, we're moving towards this element of um, air, okay, because you have, um, and, and perhaps even fire, because you have this idea of warmth, but there's definitely an air quality, because first of all, the robber is the trickster, okay, that's associated with mercury, mercury is associated with the air, and then the, and then the birds are associated with the air. So this has to do with a swift, you know, air in terms of swiftness, of communication, of messages, uh, that element of, of air. And the reindeer, um, again, the reindeer, and the reindeer has, is, is a messenger as well, tells her, you know, that he knows how to get to where, um, now or down, which she knows where Kai is. And the reindeer says, oh yeah, I, I know how to get there. So she's freed with the reindeer and they go. And they stop at a lap woman's home and a fin woman's home, okay? And they are both, they both have kind of the element of a, a sorceress. Now, the only element we haven't dealt with here is fire. Um, so they may be the idea of, um, you know, there, there's, a, there's a sort of a clarity that they offer. Um, that, that where they tell her, you know, it's, it's that purity and that's in her innocence, okay, that give her power. So it's the idea of her, there's an idea there of completely trusting in the, in the processes of life, even, even at a time when things do appear to be ugly. Now, she, of course, doesn't have the shards in her eyes, but it still would be very easy for her to interpret this whole situation, uh, you know, as, as be you know, it's very sorrowful, it's very negative, um, you know, it, you may feel despair, but she doesn't. She sort of, con she continues on and continues on, and... That power of letting go and going with the flow and allowing yourself to be taken on the experiences you need to have, even if you take detours and where you need to go, that, that trust that she has that comes out of that place of love because she's not, she's not been jaded the way Kai has. She still has that sort of childlike innocence. And that, that is another thing in the Osho deck, actually, where you have the innocence card. It's the idea of going back to the kind of innocence you have as a child that does get lost. Because we, you know, as we have life experiences, all of the things that we believed, all of the connections we had, all the openness we have to the world disappears, you know, in our intellectualism, in our cynicism, in our rationalism, um, you know, the education system. One of the negatives is the way in which that can destroy um, that sort of, um, that spark and that kind of spirit in us and make us feel like, you know, um, nothing's real and everything's bad and everything's jaded, you know, I mean, she, even though she, like I said, she doesn't have one of these shards in her eyes, there's still, you know, she's being faced with obstacles that could definitely make her be that way, but she's not, and that's where her power lies, okay? Okay. So, 
Um, so finally, she reaches the palace of the Snow Queen. So what does she see? Okay, so here we have a, a decidedly um, Christian scene where the snowflakes try to stop her from going in. But she prays the Lord's Prayer, and then they, they turn into angels that protect her from the snowflakes. So you could look at these as angels, guardian spirits, whatever it is. There's placing that faith in kind of the spirit or the spiritual realm in order to overcome uh, this particular obstacle. So she finds Kai, and okay, he's frozen, he's immobile, um, he's in a state. That's almost like being, now psychologically, that's like being in a state of disassociation where the personality is cut off, where the person is cut off. And that frozenness means that this is somebody, and what's he engaged in? An intellectual activity, a puzzle. And what does she stand on? What is her throne on? The mirror of reason. Okay, we have another mirror. We have another reflecting back. But this is all, um, you know, purely um, thought-oriented. Okay, so that's what I'm saying. There's definitely a critique here of the way in which trying to reason things out um, makes us lose touch with that, that particularly, particularly the feminine side of life. And what's interesting is that it's a, this kind of dark feminine figure who resembles some of these ancient, um, you know, uh, you know, like, like these ancient um, ice queens and so forth, you know, of, of um, Nordic mythology, like, like uh, Scotty, who also could not, cry, you know, could not laugh and was also a very angry person. Now, we don't know that the Snow Queen is angry. We do know she's very materialistic, okay? So, again, there's this idea of being, <clears throat> you know, I mean, and that's a kind of a Christian idea, you know, rejecting the material world in favor of the spiritual, which is also very platonic. Um, and that, you know, that's always something you have to take a bit with a grain of salt because, you know, uh, it's not necessarily that the material world is evil, but we can get too caught up in the sensual world and forget that there's more to it than that. So that's really where the issue is. So here, she, again, she uses her tears to melt things. And this eventually, this is, this is the water, you know, this is the warm water, okay, in the warmth that melts the ice, that gets rid of the shard from his eye, and then he suddenly now sees things as he did before. So it's that connecting with emotion. This is interesting, too, if you think about the theme of toxic masculinity. What's the problem that men have? They've been cut off from their emotions. Boys don't cry. Boys don't show pain. Boys don't, you know, don't, don't be a whiny sissy boy, right? Like, you know, that kind of a thing that kids grow up with. And if kid they do, then they get bullied. And they may be told even by, like, fathers and uncles and siblings and friends, you know, like, you know, you, you don't do that. That's not the way you behave. And so eventually, you know, you get it beaten into you that, oh, you know, um, that's, you know, that's not something that boys do. So then when there becomes a situation and then they then become, what do they become? They become very intellectual. They become very rational. They become the ones who are practical. If I can go back to my little paranormal shows, as I've said, you know, like it's always the woman and, and the children, maybe not always, but most of the time, they're the ones who like detect that something is amiss in the house that's not right. And, and the, the man is always, well, there's a logical explanation for everything. And again, it's not that there aren't women who think like this, too. But, um, you know, there's this idea that the rational world is all that matters and everything else is irrelevant or silly or delusional or child, you know, childish, not childlike. 
Um, but here now Kai is able to cry tears. So there's that reconnection to emotion. There's that reconnection. And reconnecting to Gerda is reconnecting to the feminine as well. Okay, and reconnecting through the roses, which are the divine feminine. So it's, uh, it's rather interesting. And so in this, in this dance that they do, and, and of course the dance also represents the dance of life. Um, a lot of times we just, we are so bogged down in productivity and what we have to do and what we have to get done that we forget to dance. We forget to just enjoy and love life and, and enjoy it because really, as they've said, the, the meaning of life is to be alive, not to produce all this stuff. Okay, that's, that's the real meaning is to have, or as Campbell said, to have an experience of being alive. It's not about purpose, okay? However, and in their dance, the word that he's been trying to, to spell to free himself, and that word's eternity, okay? So now there's all been all these met things about the passage of time. Now this pulls us out of time again, because eternity is outside of time. And it goes back to a state that's... that's um, you know, regardless of what religious system you practice, eternity, the idea of eternity is something um, beyond time. So this takes you um, almost back to a kind of unity that you have before the separation. Okay. In fact, the word religion comes from uh, religory, which is to bind back or to tie back or to, you know, to bring back together what's been separated. Okay. Okay. So the reindeer helps them leave the snow deer uh, domain. And then you see this kind of reversal. They go back through. They meet the lap woman and the fin woman again. They meet the robber girl again. You know, so in other words, they're kind of meeting all the same characters as they head back home. Okay. And when they are home, now they're grown-ups. They've changed. They've had experiences. She's had it through her sorrow. He's had it through his, um, his isolation, his cold, you know, reason, you know, and then, you know, being trapped in that and then being broken out of it. They both have grown up. They both have become new people. They've gone through their own heroic journey, if you will. And where they return, they return to a land where everything else is the same um, because the reality there is, is it's kind of saying there's, there's a lot in our worlds that have to do with perceptions of things. So they're perceiving, um, you know, it, so it's the way in which we look at the world and we have all these perceptions of things, but really nothing has changed. Um, I think it was expressed to me once, one of my colleagues had talked about um, the way in which he could wake up in the morning and feel a certain way about something. And then by afternoon, it's like he could just be very angry and bitter about the same thing. And he's like, well, what changed between this morning and now? Nothing really, just something that's happening inside of me has changed. And we may go through that up and down, up and down. And that's really kind of the way the wheel of life works, okay? If we think back to the, the, the spinning chakra, this wheel of samsara, it's the wheel that just keeps going around and around and we get dizzy. And the wheel is also the marker of time. So this for me is also about stepping off the wheel of time, getting back into the center, you know, dealing with the, the moment of eternity which is getting off the wheel. Now you can look at that as liberation or you can look at that as the goal of meditation. You want to be in the center. You know, you don't want to allow yourself to be dragged around by this event and that event and this thing that I like and this thing that I don't like. And, you know, we all do this, okay? We, we can't, shouldn't beat ourselves up for doing it, but we all do it. So it, it's a reminder of pull yourself out of that, pull yourself back into that space where you're not making those judgments. And of course, they're home, and it's it's summertime. So they're so in in everything that they've learned. Now they're back, um, 
back home. They're older, they've grown up, but now they're back, but they're at their peak. You know, they're not, they haven't lost their life. They're, they're not on the verge of death. Now they are actually in the place that is the full, it's the fullness of life, okay? And the fullness of life is recognizing um, that connection that is often represented by love and by, uh, by coming together, by us being to working together rather than dividing and coming apart and just seeing what we don't like about each other. And the biblical view, I mean, again, now we're going back to the lesson of uh, Matthew 18, 3, you know, unless you become as little children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. And what that would mean, I mean, Christians may see that very literally as about, you know, the conditions of going to heaven, but really it's, it's, it's the same thing. You do not find um, that that's the spirit and that's the place where you find actually your happiness, your contentment and, and your peace. And you can find that right in this lifetime if you pull back and you allow yourself to see the beauty of the world and not just the ugliness. Um, so that's it. Um, I wish everybody a very happy winter holiday. And um, again, encourage you to visit Cthonia.net. Um, if you want any of my services, liminalreiki.com. I also have gift cards. It's the time of year, um, you know, for any of my services. So, you know, so check that out if that's something that interests you. Um, follow me on social media if you don't already, um, Facebook and Twitter and uh, Instagram. I'm Cthonia Podcast, one word on Twitter and Instagram, two words on Facebook, and just Cthonia on YouTube. You know, subscribe, check in, tell me what you think, tell me what you want to hear. Um, we're going to be going into a whole new theme next year. Uh, so, you know, if you have any thoughts, if you want to support the podcast, my writing and my other work that I do and my teaching, um, you know, visit patreon.com slash Cthonia. Um, I'm doing some extra podcasts, extra episodes, giveaways, discounts for people who are patrons. So please check that out also if that interests you. And with that, I'm going to wish you very happy winter holidays, no matter what you celebrate, or perhaps not, just a, a wishing you well for the winter. And until next year. <laughs>